0: It's time for us to transform into Madam Web and get a flash of the future. Comic book solicitations for the month of February 2024 are coming up on this week's Nerd Byword. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome to episode 173 of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Thank you so so much for joining us. I am Dave. I'm here with my buddy Chris. And this week we're going to uh, whip out some crystal balls and figure out what's going to happen in the future. Uh, February 2024, to be precise, as we are looking at upcoming comic books released that month. And what are we excited about for the month of February? But first, as always, it's time for... All right, Chris, I'm actually really interested about this news story, so uh, lay it on me.
1: So, it's no secret how much we love the IDW Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series. Um, in my opinion, one of the most consistent, if not best, uh, comic books on shelves um, since its debut in 2011. Um, but the winds of change, are, they are a blowin', uh at IDW's TMNT office. Um Tom Waltz and Kevin Eastman were the primary writers um, for issues one through 100. Uh, Sophie Campbell um, came in and took over primary writing duties uh, with Waltz and Eastman, often serving as story consultants. Um, And it was revealed this past week as of the time of recording that issue 150 is going to be her final issue. Um, so there's a lot of kind of speculation of of what's going to happen. Um, this final arc is going to start off with um, 145, which just released. I must admit that I'm a bit behind in my reading. Um, I fell off after uh, Armageddon game, which was great. Um, you know, consistently crushing it. Um, and so there's a lot of, I guess speculation and just standing around wondering from tmnt fans of of where we're going to go from here who's going to take over uh are we going to go back to tom waltz um there's a there's a lot of uncertainty at this time is this the end for this this run 150 is a nice neat number is this where it ends and then we wait for a relaunch or something um, but I just, you know, wanted to take a moment and and just kind of tip of the cap to Sophie Campbell and her contributions to uh the fandom, to the comics. Um it, it's 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 definitely like some really bold storytelling. There's some really great allegories, there's some really great subtext and symbolism in these 50 issues uh that she's brought to the franchise. And it's something I'm really, really grateful for. Um, I wish her the best in her future endeavors and whatever she's, she's got uh, coming down the pipe. Um, she said this is uh, almost certainly that she will be back riding turtles in some form or fashion, but um, I'm just kind of standing around like, okay, what's next? Um, I, it's, it's kind of, it's a bittersweet moment because this is one of those series that I've just enjoyed so much and I just really hope it's not coming to an end.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a there's a sort of a, a, a an adjacent tangential story that I think we're going to have to consider when we are talking about you know what the future might hold for uh for IDW's TMNT series, which has been you know consistently one of my favorites as well, even though I've fallen behind a little bit on it, and that is that IDW as a publisher is in just a ton of financial issues. You know, I mean they're really really struggling. I think in September there was a report that they were running like a 1.28 million dollar deficit for the third uh, quarter uh, of fiscal the fiscal year that stopped in at the end of July. I think so. They've been hemorrhaging just a ton of money. Uh, rising printing costs, lower sales. Uh, IDW is really going through it as a media company. They've not been able to try to develop anything, you know, uh, it, you know, because of the lack like, of for you know other media like tv or movies because of the hollywood strike obviously so so that you know was pretty much just laying there so idw is having significant issues um so if if that's the case maybe there's something else afoot here um you know maybe they're winding down or or reducing their comic book line or something it's really difficult to predict but there are there are you know underlying issues at the publisher um I really hope it's not the end of the line because I think consistently this has just been my favorite interpretation of TMNT from all the various interpretations and adaptations we've gotten. This feels like such a strong synthesis of some of my favorite elements from various adaptations over the years, and I would love for it to continue on. Um, that being said, if they're really in the market for you know TMNT writers, I would say Chris and I can throw our hat in the ring. Uh, IDW, give us a call. You know we're we're, <laughs> we're standing by. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough because there is,
1: at the end of the day, it is a business. And that could be the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. Um, now, are they willing to sell publishing rights of these characters to uh, you know, another publisher? Um, that remains to be seen. But I mean, that's, it's kind of tough to argue anything else when, when you're losing that amount of money. All right, Dave. You hinted at it in the tease, and uh, the Sony live-action Spider adjacent film debacle
0: continues. Spider adjacent. I love that. I don't even know what to say to this. Sony continues to try to make movies about Spider-Man characters without actually involving Spider-Man, um, and we have seen time and time again how those adaptations have kind of, uh, pardon, pardon my French here, but pooped the bed. Right. So uh, here, here we are you know, a, a Craven and, and Morbius later, and we're getting a mad at web movie and, uh, the first trailer as of recording just released a day or two ago. And I'm honestly unsure what I just saw. Um, (laughs) <laughs> it's just, I was kind of speechless after I watched it, and, I, and, and, and not in a good way. It it amazes me to no end how many people online are, are pooping on something like The Marvels, which I thought was a perfectly fine movie. Um, and then this thing comes along and just like shows you how low the bar can go, apparently. I really hope that there's a good movie in that, but the trailer did not do it any favors, from clunky exposition to, to incredibly flat delivery to really, really strange choices as far as interpreting characters. So here we get a a, a Madam Web who is um, experiencing flashes of the future involving three teenagers who are all going to be spider-powered heroes in the future. And a strangely young and hot Ezekiel is, is running around in this, uh, a character from the J. Michael Straczynski run of Spider-Man, wear, wearing a Dollar Tree-inspired knockoff Spider-Man costume, which is absolutely horrendous and a really weird choice considering this is the guy who pr- preferably runs around on rooftops barefoot um, and is supposed to be just an old dude. Um, he was old man Logan before old man Logan. Exactly. And so, and, and so apparently the the underlying plot of the movie is that he is trying to prevent these three teenage girls from becoming spider powered heroes for whatever reason. Um, and Madam Webb is trying to use her future seeing powers to, you know, stop him. And it's just very, very odd. Um, as a fan of, you know, a lot of the source material, I think Ezekiel was a really interesting character, especially in some of his earlier appearances. Um, that's kind of gone out of the window here. It's very, very strange character. Um. Madam Webb is just very, very oddly portrayed here, uh, by Dakota Johnson. Like, I don't know if they just really picked the worst takes for this trailer, but like I said earlier, her delivery is incredibly flat. Like, there's very little reaction going on into anything going on around her or anything it's very very odd there's like one interesting moment in the whole trailer that's when she tells those three teenage girls that she can see the future and one of the girls throws a rock at her and says she didn't see that coming and uh that amused me mildly uh but other than that this is just a very very odd trailer um So like I said, I hope that there's a good movie in this, but the trailer did not do it any favors. It feels very, very, very strange. What do you think, Chris?
1: Yeah, it's. uh, first of all, it's not been a great week for Sydney Sweeney, uh, who is, I I honestly don't understand the hype around. Uh, That's just me personally, though. So first this trailer drops, and then her trailer with this, her other movie gets mocked by Nathan Fielder, who's a comedic genius and I'll follow to the ends of the earth. Um, and, and, and Emma Stone, um, but like it's, it's the, it, it's produced the new meme du jour with, you know, I was, uh, he was with my mother in the Amazon researching spiders before her death. Like it's, 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 it's one of the strangest trailers and Sony continues to outdo themselves when it comes to. Like I said, live action spider adjacent films like stick to the Spider-Verse movies, the The animated, whoever you've got in charge doing that is, is doing a great job. But everybody else just I, I, I'm i I'm speechless at this point. Like someone said, it's like Morbius for the ladies. Uh, I, I'm just lost. The first Venom was tolerable. The second one was unwatchable. Um, I, I refuse to watch Morbius. Uh I don't know if I'm going to want, I'm probably not going to watch this. Like uh, why punish myself with with like bad, 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 bad movies. And this is, this is why it's so funny to me that people are, There's so many people that are just waiting for the, the death throes of the Marvel cinematic universe when this is the alternative, this,
0: this is what you prefer.
1: Yeah. Miss me with that. You can, you can, you can have it. Like I'm, I'm so, I'm so good. Like I, I don't need any of it.
0: Yeah. It's sad because I think uh, for all the criticism that sometimes is leveled against the MCU, as far as uh, comic book adaptations goes, I, I think they're pretty much superhero wise, still the best game in town. Even when they misfire, they make, I will say, average... I will watch, I will watch
1: an, I will watch an endless loop of quantum mania for a week than any of this.
0: I will I will freely admit though that I will probably watch this just because of you know absolutely rampant curiosity of how badly they pooped the bid like Morbius was essentially a meme like you you knew that that you know that there was nothing going to be redeeming about that movie from the casting to the trailer like that there was just nothing good to see there I I feel like you know like I had zero interest but here, I, I feel like I'll probably check it out just because I want to get a sense for the shape of the train wreck, I guess. Um,
1: and plus, and it, all might of these, really, these, it might make a
0: really interesting podcast episode for us to try to fix this particular movie. <laughs> well,
1: number num- number one, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of that meme that was like, I support women's rights and women's wrongs. Like, <laughs> this one's, you know, female empowerment to make crappy movies just like the men do. Um, but like also at the same time, like I view all of these industry insiders with comic book movies with the most criminal offensive of side eyes. Like I think I like uh ugh. Just I can't I can't stand them. I I will wait for the official announcement. All of these oh this person's Mister Fantastic. Uh, as of the time of recording, Pedro Pascal is supposed to be Mister Fantastic. I will wait until I you know see the trailer or something because like all of these up and down rumors of everything. However, there are rumblings that this Tom Holland led Spider Man Four is going to tie into all of these movies, which. Ugh, ugh! Make of that what
0: you will. No, n- no, thanks. <laughs> thanks like, I, like look, thanks. I, I hate I, it. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. Like, I'm not. I'm not uninterested in a Tom Holland-led Spider-Man four. Okay, like I, I think um, a clean break from that first trilogy and and you know, uh, starting something new, you know, and taking him into some new directions and stuff would be incredibly interesting to see. It would also be like. Um, the longest continuing story, I guess, we've had of a, of a singular Spider-Man. <laughs> so kind of like, you know, putting down your foot and saying, okay, this is a, a line in the sand and now we're going to shift, you know, his whole circumstances, his whole life has changed. What can we do with that, you know, from a story perspective? I think that's interesting. But if you're going to try to throw, you know, Venom in this and and and, Craven and, and Morbius and, and Madam Web, and I, I don't know, man. Like, I think at that point, you're just, like, really pooping the bed. Have we not because... learned our
1: lesson with overstuffed villains with a single hero?
0: No, no, apparently we have not. There's a lot of lessons we still haven't learned. One of them should be Sony should stick to animated superhero features. That's a lesson I'm still waiting for. Like, I just want... I am not one of these people that is actively rooting against any of these movies, is the thing, you know? Like, I just... I want good comic book adaptations, you know? But there is a point where you cannot divorce a character from their context. And I think that's one of the struggles that I even had with Venom. And I know that Venom has its fans, but divorced from the context of this suit, you know, bonded with Peter Parker and he took it off and the whole background with his beef with Eddie Brock and all of that, that is so quintessential to what Venom is that I found Venom to be fairly unrecognizable, both both as a, as a character and as a story when I watched the movie. And I think... Craven, in a lot of ways, is is the same way. Morbius is the same way. There's an intrinsic connection to the, the Spider-Man mythos. You know, it's like making a Lex Luthor movie without Superman in it. You know, like at some point, you need to stop trying to to to, to disconnect these characters from their larger context because ultimately, you lose something really, really intrinsic and important to those characters. And I think that's that's ultimately really the problem with what Sony's trying to do. You know, if you would take, for example, something like Silk, okay, I think you can make a decent Silk standalone movie without Spider-Man making an appearance, and even just like obliquely referencing him. You know, I think I think you can probably pull that off with a character like Silk, because her story is in a lot of ways um, not entwined with Peter Parker's, but more like parallel, I guess. If that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. So I think something like Sill can work as a standalone adaptation. Especially you especially
1: with... you can divorce yourself with that gross pheromone stuff Dan Slott was trying to
0: pull. Please, please, please. As soon as they dumped that, the character came became fifty million times better. Um, but then when you're dealing with, with villains, for example, right, like Craven, um, as soon as you divorce that villain from the context, you're losing what makes that villain interesting. You know, here's this this hunter who's decided he's going to hunt the Spider-Man, you know? Like, it's, it's a great, great hook. But as soon as you remove the Spider-Man element from it, it's not. And so I, th- I think Sony just needs to learn a lesson here really, really badly that that some of these are not working. And I may be wrong. I may be putting my foot in my mouth and Madam Web turns out to be a really good movie and and, and I need to eat lots and lots of crow. And I will. Gladly even, because I want good movies. But this trailer was not convincing, Chris.
1: No, and everything that I get from the Sony live-action adjacent films is, it's a lot of lordy type stuff. Like, what if we did this differently? And what if we marched to the beat of our own drum? And when you, when you give people free reign to do that, you just realize after a while, you're just kind of off on your own path and you're lost now. And that's where these movies seem to be leading. They're just lost. Like, what is this? What are we doing here? Like, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not here for it.
0: It's so different almost that it's not really even an adaptation. You know? It's not really an, even a reinterpretation. It's just over here in its own little place. Very, very odd. Alrighty, folks there you have it that's it for nerd news what are your thoughts on the madam web trailer and uh, what are your hopes for the future of the tmnt series at idw Uh, find us on social media at nerd by word or individually at that nerd dave and at that nerd chris we'd love to hear what you're thinking let's take a quick break after we're back it's time for a quick peek at our favorites from the february 2024 solicitations And we're back and it's time for more solicitation as we take a look at February 2024 in this week's It is always interesting to peruse what is coming up in the world of comic books, what catches our eye, and what we cannot wait to read. So as we sometimes like to do, Chris and I both picked our top three most interesting uh, upcoming comic books from the February 2024 solicitations, and we want to talk a little bit about what's got us hyped about them. And we're going to start with Make Mine Marvel Chris. Uh, Chris, what was your first pick from the solicitations? Listen,
1: everything that's coming out about Ultimate Spider-Man and the Ultimate Universe at large has, has got me hook, line, and sinker. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat a little bit because both uh, m- my initial one. If, if you tell me to pick one, I'm gonna go Ultimate Spider-Man number two. Uh, the solicit reads: "The most surprising Spider-Man story of the 21st century continues. Spider-Man faces his first super villain." J. Jonah Jameson's quest to uncover who is really pulling the strings of this new ultimate universe leads to a shocking revelation. And New York City welcomes its newest hero, the Green Goblin. Um, of course, written by uh, Jonathan Hickman, art by Marco Chaquetto, and everything that Chaquetto has like released when it comes to even like the like the, the design pages absolutely knocks it out of the park. Um, These covers are spellbinding. like They're incredible. Um, And I'm just really here for exploring this kind of storyline. It's weird because a lot of that solicitation right there that I just read feels kind of in the same spirit of the original Ultimate Spider-Man. You have JJJ, who is like this evolved, updated version of the character. And I'm hoping that, at least from what this sounds like, sounds to be in the same kind of context of that. Um, And then, you know, this, this green goblin look, which is, it's definitely unique. I don't know how I feel about it. They kind of went full power ranger, Um, but kind of picturing him as this like hero. And obviously there's going to be more nuance to that, like behind the scenes, who is Goblin? I'm hearing rumblings that it's Harry. Um, I don't know if that's confirmed or not. So I'm just I'm just ready to take this dive and read all of this. But you know, I also don't want to neglect the fact that I'm also super here for Ultimate Black Panther, which I did not read the original Ultimate Black Panther. I know that one of my new favorites, Moon Knight, was like this adversarial. And, like, taking control of the continent of Africa. But, you know, Brian Hill has really won me over with Blade, which I need to get caught back up on. Um, and then Stefano Caselli on art. Everything looks awesome there. Um, the suit is growing on me, especially this second main cover where he's seated in the chair. Um So I'm going to go ahead and give the solicitor for this too, but the new ultimate Black Panther in the wake of ultimate invasion, Konshu and Ra, the force known together as Moon Knight are seeking to expand their brutal control of the continent of Africa. In response, the lone bulwark against them, the isolated nation of Wakanda will send forth its champion, its King, the Black Panther from the creative minds of Brian Hill, Blade, Killmonger, and Stefano Caselli, X-Men Red and Avengers comes a bold new take on the world of Black Panther and Wakanda. So I think Ultimate Universe did a lot of convincing. Um, Ultimate Invasion, I, en- I enjoyed more binging through and leading straight into Ultimate Universe 1. And I'm kind of sold on this hook, line, and sinker, man.
0: Yeah, as we've talked about previously, Ultimate Universe, number one, is the thing that kind of brought it home for me. That this, you know, um, this could be a really special line um so i'm I'm really really here for this I'm very excited for the spider man book I'm very interested in the notion of uh, a Peter Parker who comes to uh the role of spider man later in life I think that's really 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 cool um I think there's a lot of interesting story potential for the kind of stories that we're not getting um you know in 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 the in the mainline um universe and something that is also significantly different from the previous ultimate spider man I think there's just a ton of potential here. Um, I'll also say that I really like the 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 hook for um for Ultimate Black Panther, um, sort of this underdog story. Even though he is you know a king and a superhero, he's really the underdog. You know, kind of trying to stop this unstoppable force from taking over the entire African continent. I think there's something something really interesting about that. Um, I, the suit has not grown on me. It's just, <laughs> to me, it, it feels just still way too busy somehow. The, it's um, the foot
1: clause. I think it's the foot clause.
0: I will also say though, that, uh, when you look through the variant covers that are, there are some covers that I think the suit works better than on others. Um, so I think it really, really depends on the artist and how, you know, artists ultimately, um <laughs> ultimately interpret interpret this particular design i guess is the best way to put it um but i'm very very excited for all things ultimate uh and i can't wait to dive in i really am very excited for this stuff chris
1: dude your first one to- uh completely caught me off guard and i'm here for it
0: This is what I do, my friend. I find the weird stuff. Um, So uh, it's no secret that both Chris and I have become big, big fans of Ram V for various series that, uh, you know, he's put out over the the last few uh, months. And uh, we're getting another series written by Ram V, this one from Image Comics. Um, First issue in February of 2022. It's called One Hand. Um, And here is the official solicit text. Miniseries premiere. Neo-Novena detective Ari Nasser is about to retire with an enviable record until a brutal murder occurs, bearing all the hallmarks of the one-hand killer, which should be impossible since Ari already put him away not once but twice in the years before. What follows is a deadly cat-and-mouse game as uh, Ari pursues his quarry down the rain-soaked streets of Neo-Novena, Ari will stop at nothing to unravel the secrets and ciphers of this case, but each revelation only leads further into the dark heart of his future of his future metropolis and Ari's own beleaguered soul. Grippingly written by award-winning writer Ram V, with hauntingly atmospheric art and covers by Lawrence Campbell and Lee Lofridge, One Hand is a miniseries that will keep you guessing until the very end. So two things to say here. Uh, number one, Ram V. I mean, if you need further convincing after hearing Ram V, then uh, I, I doubt your taste somehow. Um, but secondly, beautiful, beautiful art, like really sort of noir-soaked, uh, absolutely gritty, beautiful, beautiful art. I'm very, very hyped for this one. I love a good detective story. I love the noir genre, all the tropes and trappings of that. Um I'm just really, really interested in this one. This is probably the thing that caught my attention the most, and I am totally psyched to give this one a look, Chris.
1: Yeah, the news, uh, the news story that I found for this from Screen Rant um, said that the art is moody and rain soaked, and I couldn't agree more. Like this, this feels like the best of the the Batman when he's being a detective. Um, what I've heard great things about run de- work on detective comics which i plan to check out um when i'm feeling ambitious uh to start a completely new title i've never read before um but yeah like this just looks so great i'm such a fan of like noir detective stuff and like you said Ramvy like uh one of the one of the top in the game right now
0: yeah, absolutely, and you know, Image is always good for for a nice surprise, a good little mini series. This one's supposed to run for five issues, um, and I really, really enjoy um, how Image, uh, you know, manages to do these self-contained indie stories, still, even though they're such a you know massive publisher. So I'm I'm really excited for this one. All right, Chris, uh, no surprise, we're keeping it in the Spidey family. What you got next? So. Uh... They're getting the band back together, pun intended. Uh,
1: Spider-Punk one of four, four four-issue miniseries written by Cody Ziegler, uh, written by Justin Mason, who previously did a Spider-Punk series that I nerd commended. Um, I'm reading this list here. Encore, you wanted more. In a world without Norman Osborn, Spider-Punk reigns. This ain't no victory lap, though, as Hobie Brown and team try to rebuild society, Justin Hammer and Dr. Otto Octavius have other plans, like introducing the world to the spider-slaying Sentinels. Cody Ziegler, Miles Morales, Spider-Man, and Justin Mason, Spider-Man 2099, Dark Genesis, reunite to bring the Brooklyn boy back with the whole crew you know and love. Grab your boots, your instruments, your amps, and let's go. And, uh, I mean, Cody Ziegler is just one of those writers that, if it's similar to Ram V, very different Storytelling aesthetic, but if Cody Ziggler's attached, I'm immediately interested. Um, that first Spider-Punk series was super fun. It was super imaginative. With with alternate universes, you there's a, lo- a lot of times we can get kind of trapped in the, the status quo, if you will, and everything is just so similar, and there's no real ambition. Uh, there's no real adventurous kind of spirit in reimagining things and that is thankfully very very different in in the spider punk you know universe and and so i'm very very excited to see where we go here we got a variant cover by maria wolf who's one of my faves in the game right now um i mean easily the breakaway star from the across the spider verse film was hopi brown like everybody was in love the the animation style was just Incredible, captivating. Um, and so I'm excited to continue on this journey of learning more about this character that I that I love.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not sure uh, because I've not read a lot of Spider-Punk how similar the character in the comics is to the one we saw in Spider-Verse. Um, but it, if, it, if it is, you know, uh, a similar situation and I'm definitely here for it and, you know, really interested in this one. Um, I, I will say... Uh, as a, a as a DC fan, I guess I've had to get used to this, but sometimes it's incredible how large and expansive all these variations of various characters get. Like, how many Spider characters do we have? How many flashes? You know, at least with Green Lantern, it's built into the premise, right? But um, it's it's kind of it's kind of nuts if you think about it. How many Spider characters we have these days? If you go back, what twenty years? It, this was not the shape of things back then. Um, I wonder if we're, you know, a lot of people talk about like superhero fatigue, but I do sometimes wonder if we're going to eventually get like multiverse fatigue, I guess. Because, I mean, this is also a multiverse character, It's like Spider-Gwen, right? Yeah, I wonder if we're, if we're going to reach a saturation point with multiversal stories. It's interesting.
1: I think I think for me because there was another one that I kind of had my eye on, like the Edge of Spider Verse. Um, simply for no other reason that one of the covers has a cyclops like spider, and so like I mean cyclops is one of my preeminent like all time comic book characters, and so like that's immediately going to grab my attention. But at the same time, like you said, I think I'm just going to pick and choose. Like, hmm, maybe this is a bit too much for me, and I set my own limits on how much Spider Verse do I really need to consume um but at the same time like if if the story is good i'm going to be there
0: yep yeah, absolutely man all
1: right so i saw the jenny frizen cover for this one and it absolutely had me head over heels
0: i'm i'm one of those weirdos who's not always excited when a um a actor kind of crosses over into like hey i'm going <laughs> to i'm going to write some comic books these days you know um but i may make an exception here Um, because this is just almost too cool to pass up. We're talking about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the return number one coming in February from Boom Studios. Boom has been uh, consistently knocking it out of the park in the last couple of years. I'll also say that they've really, really knocked the whole uh, Power Rangers license out of the park too. Some of the stuff that they've been doing with Power Rangers has been um, really, really good. And I think their, their sort of take on Mighty Morphin is like up there to me with like idw's turtles that's just like a really cool synthesis of the things that were cool about mighty morphin but with a little bit more modern sensibilities to it Uh, i think the series works incredibly well long long may it continue (laughs) that's all i can say there but this is going to be a very very uh different beast here so this is actually uh, written by former Pink Ranger during the Mighty Morphin years, Amy Jo Johnson and Matt Hodson, with art by Nico Leon. Um, and here is the synopsis. In an alternate universe, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers finally defeated Rita Repulsa and Lord Zed, but at a terrible cost. In the wake of tragedy, the team went their separate ways. 22 years later, the long disbanded team reunites to mourn the losses of beloved friends but Zack and Billy have some unexpected information to share. Jason, the Red Ranger, has been operating as a lone vigilante and has since disappeared. Will the remaining Rangers be able to track him down, especially with a mysterious figure in pursuit? Uh, this, this is really, really interesting, and that is sort of an alternate universe take here, on, on, on an alternate timeline take, I would say, really, of, of the Power Rangers. What would have happened if they actually had finally defeated rita and zed right and then kind of like flash forward to like more of a modern day setting like these characters are now aged you know they've not been in the game for a while what happens when they have to get back together this is a really interesting sort of character study almost set up for the power rangers franchise i find that really interesting um the involvement of of amy joe johnson here i think is really interesting um you know, she she was not in the uh once and always special. Regrettably, um, for whatever reasons those might have been, and obviously that that is totally her choice. But I'm glad that she's decided to uh, get involved on the comic side as a way of sort of celebrating her involvement with the franchise. So that's really really cool. Um, I'm very very interested in this one just as a big old time um you know Power Rangers fan and also a fan of of Amy Jo Johnson in general. Uh, I I think there's uh the potential here to. Uh, be something really, really special. So I'm definitely here for this one, Chris.
1: It's funny because sometimes like, and I don't want to be talking out of two sides of my mouth, but with something with these these licensing and and the nostalgia of it all, um, I was really pleasantly surprised by how well it worked. Um, my introduction to Power Rangers comics, as loyal listeners know, is the the, the Ninja Turtle crossover. But on your recommendation, I did check out like the first two or three trades of the the Power Rangers proper comic. And I really, really greatly enjoyed it. And um, I need to get back onto it. But yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely interested uh, and intrigued on this. Um, I was I felt similarly so really about the the Netflix special where she was not involved. But, you know, people set their own limits and we got a, a really fun. It's I mean, like the cheesiness of it all <laughs> be darned, but it was a really, really fun kind of celebration of the history of those characters. And uh, I'm excited to do that again. All
0: righty, Chris. So your your final uh, book that you have an eye on is no surprise to longtime listeners of the pod.
1: Well, listen, as of the time of recording, Immortal Thor 4 just dropped and was one of those issues, in my opinion, where you just, you're kind of, stunned you just sit there you finish it and you're just kind of speechless it's one of those standalone issues where you're just like oh my god what did i just read um and all credit to al ewing and martin Cocolo, like it was just a magnificent magnificent issue um and so i'm excited to see where this issue goes and and immortal thor 7 is the solicitation that we have for february so I would not be doing my due diligence if um, I didn't recommend this one. So the solicit reads, The Trials of Utgard, young Thor faced the tricks of the Utgard-Loki with all that lived at stake in a tale twice told and now told again. Yet the teller was the skald of Realms, in their aspect as Thor's enemy. And thus the tale could twist upon itself, and if Thor faltered, it could make a new end. This is the story of the immortal Thor, and the story may yet destroy us all. I just—we talked about this when this series was announced. How Ewing put that immortal tag on this as like a self-challenge to live up to, um, with the success and, um, and how critically acclaimed uh, Immortal Thor was, and by my margin it's absolutely lived up to that um, which is a tall order um, I saw I saw someone online compare uh, immortal Hulk is the realms of, of hell and then immortal Thor is the realms of heaven and like what character would you like to see as like purgatory or something uh, people were joking that that spider-man would be the <laughs> immortal spider-man would be endless purgatory for his character development or lack thereof <laughs> um, but I—I tell you what, man—the—the um, the synchronicity between the script and the art, as the biggest mythology nerd and enthusiast that you'll find, just diving deep in the—the the poetic Eddas of old, like bringing back like Utgard and Torinos, like these old, not very often referenced, like old Celtic stuff. Mythology, in addition to the Norse mythology, like it's just a wild ride, and I absolutely love it, man. Not to mention, not to pro- mention, like the Thor core, like you've got Storm, you've got Loki lifting the hammer, you've got Jane there, uh, you got Beta Ray Bill. Like it's, it was just an awesome jam piece, and I, I'm ready for more.
0: Look, I think it's fair to say that pound for pound, this is probably the best superhero book on the market right now. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I'm not this lifelong Thor fan that you are, and I, and I'm reading a lot of books that I'm really enjoying. I think what's going on with the Superman line over DC is, is fantastic. But, but I think that this book is a whole different level. I think Ewing really is bringing something special to the table here. And there are, there are things that are clicking in in a way that I think, could make this like the quintessential like definite thor run if it continues the way it is right now. I think there are so many interesting things happening and there's so many layers and so much complexity to the storytelling even though on the surface it's a very simple story, you know. There are so many layers here. I love the depiction of his relationship with Loki in this. Oh, that's the best. Oh, I, the best. Oh. I I I, th- I think I think that they really like they hit on something with this particular... I, I love the whole, like, do, do, do you trust me as your brother? Do you trust me as your enemy? Your enemy? You know, enemy? Like,
1: oh, my God.
0: Oh, that moment was so good, you know? And it's just like, yeah, I do trust you. Even if you're my enemy, be what you have to be. You know, like, it's... it's th- That kind of just, like, love between those two characters, even though, you know, all the stuff they've been through as adversaries, it's, it's just... it's It's a fantastic book. It just clicks on every singular... Level And that is very, very rare in in, in corporate superhero comics these days, you know, like everything feels a little compromised, everything feels a little controlled by editorial, everything feels like we need to maintain a certain status quo so we can, you know, uh, you know, set the table for the next writer and just continue this, you know, into infinity. But this almost feels like Thor as like an image comic or something, you know mature, complex, deep storytelling. You know, I just, I really, really love this book. And that's, you know, that's saying something because again, I'm not, I'm not like completely hooked on Thor like you are, but this is a special book, man. So I'm very excited for this to continue.
1: What What I appreciated about it the most is the the back and forth between Thor and Loki doesn't feel stagnant or stale. Like I was looking at the d c solicitations, and I was just like, "Oh, here's more joker, here's more joker, and then there's more joker and i like there there's a there's a part of me that I don't think I've ever read a single Batman proper comic book, and I think that's probably my greatest hesitation is like I don't wanna be smashed over the head. over the head with the joker the, the joker <laughs> like but what the commitment to, like the fact that Loki is gender fluid and uses they, them pronouns, like is just fascinating. Like the lip line, Loki's lip liner is popping. Uh it's like, <laughs> like, looks great. The art just sings. And for something like this story has been going on for centuries and still being able to find uncharted territory in this uncharted storytelling potential like i almost teared up when loki lifted the hammer man like that's that's powerful stuff
0: it is and it's just it 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 does not disappoint you know and and i think stuff like Loki's gender fluidity is so baked into like the original mm-hmm. myths, anyways. Yes, like here, here here's the guy who dude sired a child with a
1: horse. A with a horse. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, like that's he, yeah.
0: He he will he he is he's about as 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 fluid as a character can be, I think. And so you know, translating that into sort of this this modern, modern sensibility works incredibly well and feels very true, I think, to to the original myths that that, that these comics are based on, right? Um, so I just, I just think this, this is clicking on every single level. Um, if, if Ewing's thing now is that I, if I, he puts a mortal on the cover, then it means that he's bringing his a game. Then I will be at every immortal, whatever he does, you know, because I love the mortal Hulk. I, I love the writing on Immortal Hulk. Um, And now you know he's doing it again with Thor, and I'm just like, hey, if you if you if you just want to like put your immortal spin on like all the big Marvel characters, I'm here for immortal Captain America and immortal Spider Man and immortal Black Widow. Just keep making him immortal, man. I'm ready for it because it's just it's it just he's he's just firing on all cylinders right now, man.
1: And I think I I I have failed in this um, kind of solicitation myself. Not talking about the conversation between Thor and Aurora in this fourth issue about like, there are so many segments of fandom is just like, what can this great people call it feats F E A T S like, Oh, look at this big, cool thing that my favorite character can do. And like the conversation between the two of them was just such a great kind of encapsulation about like why we do the thing that we do as heroes. And like, yeah, I can do these things, but it's the why and i thought that was just really really powerful.
0: Yeah, absolutely man.
1: Um Dave, friend of the show, former guest, uh as the writer on this next one, and i cannot wait for you to pronounce the
0: artist's name. <laughs> you can kiss my butt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I I try hard, okay? I try hard. It might not always work, but I try hard. Okay, uh, so so we have a new another book from Boom. Uh, you know, again, Boom Studios has been really clicking. Um, so we have a a new number one, The Displaced, which has a really sort of interesting high concept thing going on for it. Uh, written by Ed Brisson with art by Luca Casalunguida. Hey. I mean, I'm getting better. Uh, (laughs) This actually, um, this is a fascinating concept. And alone for that, I just want to check it out. So the city of Oshawa, Ontario has vanished without a trace. Even worse, nobody remembers it or the 170,000 missing residents that disappeared along with it. As the survivors also fall into the forgotten, they must seek each other out if they hope to have any chance of surviving in a world where no one believes they exist. Uh, Highly acclaimed writer Ed Brisson, uh, rising star artist Luca Casalunguida, and red-hot colorist D. Knaif posed the question, how can you feel connected to reality or each other if by all uh, verifiable means you do not exist? Uh, This is is a really fascinating concept. And, you know, the idea of, like, there being some kind of vanishing and then, you know, how does that affect people always lends itself to really interesting like character study kind of things um i really remember loving the woods for example by james tinian uh that was a great book where like a whole high school gets transported vanishes and gets transported to like an alien planet that was a fantastic book all right so those that that sort of jumping off point um for characters i think is really really interesting and so I'm really, really here for this just because I want to know what they're actually doing with the concept. You know, it's one of those books where you don't know anything about the characters. You don't really know anything about the storytelling yet. But it has sort of a really, really great high concept idea behind it. Um, so I'm really, really here for this one. Also, uh, I think, you know, it's going to be fun to pick up something by Ed Brisson again, right? Um, been, a, been a little while since we spoke to him. Um, but I, uh, I think he's a cool dude and I'm really interested in seeing what he does with this book. Yeah, I'm really
1: fascinated. I think it's really cool as well. Uh, If you do not know, Ed Brisson lives in Canada, and he spoke about that when we we talked with him way back when. Um, And so kind of like that firsthand knowledge of kind of the setting, I think that brings like so much wealth of of storytelling potential. Um, The the main cover alone is just like hypnotically terrifying. Um, I've been revisiting... Uh, a previously nerd commended game that I would like to color outside the lines and sec- like reaffirm that nerd commendation, Redfall. Okay, so y'all were hating on that game because of FPS and God knows what, but that game is fun. But it's also abjectly terrifying, especially if you're playing in the dark. So I'm kind of like looking around every corner right now. Even though Nerd Nightmare is over, I'm still spooking myself by playing a vampire hunting uh, slaying game. Um, but yeah, this, this cover with like all these bodies, like in this, this circular kind of abyss is fascinating. And, uh, like, like this sci-fi kind of aspect that the twilight zone, I think is what Brisson said in one of the interviews as well. Um, is really fascinating. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to check this one out.
0: Alrighty, folks. There you have it. That's it for our uh, picks for February 2024. Which books are you excited for? Find us on social media and let us know. You can find us at nerd by word and individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. Stick around because everybody's favorite segment is just around the corner. After a quick break, we are bringing you two new nerd commendations. And we're back. It's time for everybody's favorite, where we bring you some recommendations for new nerdy media. It's time for... Chris, the strike is over. We finally can talk about it. Go.
1: I don't know. Like, we, we probably could have made this its own episode, man. But yeah, the strike's over. Let's talk about Ahsoka. I, I Listen, going into this series, I had very high expectations. Um, Star Wars Rebels is my favorite Star Wars. If you know anything about me, you know I love Star Wars Rebels. It's my favorite Star Wars. Yes, even more so than the original trilogy. That might be blasphemy, but I don't care. Um, now, are there elements of the original trilogy that are better? Perhaps. But my favorite, my home, my happy place is Star Wars Rebels. Um, I just think that it's it's imaginative. I think it's ambitious in its storytelling. I think uh, Twilight of the Apprentice, the showdown between Ahsoka and Vader is one of like one of the quintessential moments, one of the most overlooked uh, and underappreciated moments in all of Star Wars because it's animation. We talked we've talked a great deal about the, the anti-animation bias by a lot of general audiences and how unfortunate that is. So going into this, I was like, hmm, we're getting the band back together, but am I going to be happy? And I am. It was, it was kind of rough sledding there at the beginning. It took a lot to win me over. But like, man, when it found its footing, it was singing. Um, I'm gonna be completely honest with you, and we're gonna have to probably get your bleep button ready because we're gonna talk about Rosario Dawson um <laughs> for Dave. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. Like, I have such a special place in my heart for Ashley Eckstein as Ahsoka Tano. It took a long time for me to get used used to Rosario Dawson in the role. But she won me over uh, in this series, and it was fantastic. And there's no shortage of just like acting performances. Like, look anywhere you want to. My space wife, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Harrison Dula. Love her. Love her so much. And there are some people who said that she was too flippant. She was, um, I heard another uh, person say that she was always the smartest person in the room. She was the adult in the room. Um, And she came across across as kind of flippant, but I'm here for the character development. She lost the love of her life. Who's to say that she's not going to go through a personality change. Who's not to say she's going to get fed up. Um, we have some clear elements to Heir to the Empire developing in this series. Um, whether or not they're good enough for Dave to be happy with remains to be seen. We have a less furry Counselor phalia who has a different name in this series. Um, but he's the, the jerk who's clearly in with the Empire. He's clearly Thrawn's pawn, if you will. Um, I think really heart-wrenching to see how wonderful Ray Stevenson was as Balin Skull. Uh, In a lot of respects, maybe the best thing about this show was Balin Skull and his portrayal, just out of the park. And to, to know that we will never see him in that role again is just heartbreaking. And I mean it, Star Wars, never again. Do not CGI his face, do that whole crap. He's gone. Let that performance stand the test of time. Uh, I mean, even Ivana Sokno as Shin hanti was a revelation, uh, revelation. Natasha Lou Bordiso as Sabine was maybe my least favorite element. I'm not a huge Sabine fan to begin with. She does some dumb stuff that just makes you shake your head in frustration. Uh, Grand Admiral Thrawn, Lars Mickelson. I, I know that there was a lot of discourse about what that looked like in the live action, but that voice, I don't care. I don't care what the fit looks like. I don't care what he looks like in blue makeup. I don't care the voice. The Mickelsons can chew a scene. Period. Full stop. Also, shouts to Diana Lee and Asanto as Morgan Elsbeth, who really just knocked it out of the park. But Hu Yang, David Tennant, Hu Yang was impeccable. We love a sassy b- in Star Wars and uh, David Tennant was exactly that as Huyang. Um yeah. <laughs> but Dave, uh, t- no. Iman Fondi as Ezra Bridger, like I love me some Ezra Bridger. Like ugh, and just like a quintessential casting there. But my 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 boy Chopper, love him down. But here's the thing, Dave. Our guy Hayden Christensen, we have to talk about it. What the redemption arc if you will, if you want to call it a redemption arc, storytelling-wise, like, you, whatever. But, like, what they've been able to do across Kenobi and now Ahsoka with Hayden Christensen returning to the role and actually given quality content, quality script, is some of the most powerful storytelling I've ever seen in any franchise, not just Star Wars. That, that episode will stand the test of time for me as one of the most important... Things. Um, there's a debate: is Andor better, Ahsoka better, whatever. Yeah, Andor probably collectively is a better series, but as you use posited this, this is more Star Wars, this series. And just the scenes of him walking off into battle and like the lightning flashes, and he turns into Vader, and then he turns back to Anakin is just like the conversations that he had with Ahsoka. It's just some of the most powerful stuff, the most emotion I've ever felt in Star Wars, man. And I definitely recommend this series if if you love Star Wars because it, it just really touched my heart in a way that Rebels did as well.
0: There's a lot to unpack here. I do feel like we almost need an episode just to review Ahsoka. Um, but I do agree with your nerd commendation. I think this is a really, really good series. And you're right. One of the first things I said after finishing it is that this has probably been the most Star Wars feeling Star Wars uh, product that we've had in a long time. And I think uh, part of the function of that is that it is a continuation of Rebels uh, in in you know all but name, really. Um, I, re- I watched the first season, season and a half of Rebels, and I remember liking it a great deal. I'm just kind of falling off the wagon with it, but I'm, I'm sort of aware of the broad strokes of the show. And I think that familiarity of all the characters involved here is uh, probably what makes this feel so very star Wars, because I think at the heart of the original trilogy was always a sense of um, camaraderie, I guess is the best way to put it. It's family underlying friendship, you know, it's family. Yeah, and I think I think part of the problem of what made the prequels feel a little cold in comparison is that everybody was sort of there more out of a sense of duty, you know, it's the Jedi's duty to do this and the duty to do that and it's Padmé's duty as a as a queen, as a senator to do this and to be here and and it never felt um like the camaraderie was laced as carefully through that particular story as in the original Star Wars. Um, and I think this is what we get here. I think Ahsoka is very much a story of camaraderie. It's a, very much a story of, of of people who are connected to each other and trying to be there for each other and help each other, and uh, even through the the disagreements and the, the difficulties and the conflicts between personalities. And I think it, that that's resonant. Um, it, it it just works and it feels very much uh, in line with something like the original trilogy because of that. So I like I like that a great deal. Um, were there mistakes in the show in, you know, from a storytelling perspective in my book, there were a few, I think, but that's, you know, to be expected, nothing is ever going to resonate 100% with everybody. Um, but overall, I liked, I liked the acting a great deal in the show. I liked the the writing a great deal in the show. I think it didn't overstate its welcome. I think I was actually disappointed that it essentially ended in a to be, to be continued, right? That it didn't, that it did not have a, a satisfying conclusion, um, I think that that's that's a problem, generally speaking, with modern Star Wars, comic book movies, all of that, I think, is that nobody wants to actually tell a complete story. You just always have to leave leave things hanging to a certain extent because we need that sweet, sweet sequel money, right? Um, and I know that there's a plan with this. that This is all leading to some kind of movie, right? Um, the big speculation being that, that it's some kind of adaptation of Heir to the Empire, Um the Thrawn of it all was really good as a, as a Thrawn fan going all the way back to the nineties, not in that I like him, but that I think he's a great adversary for star Wars heroes because he's so different from something like the emperor or, or Darth Vader somebody who's not force sensitive and just uses his intellect Um, is, is an absolute great, great uh, foil for the heroes in star Wars. And I think that the Thrawn of it all worked incredibly well here. Um, as far as, you know, like Rosario Dawson, the less I say about her the better. Um so <laughs> needless to say, I thought she was really good here. I think there was a lot of criticism um leveled against her initially for being not snippy enough, I guess is the best way to put it. But I think that was within this is not teenage, the character. This is not teenage
1: art. Ahsoka though.
0: Yeah, and I think, I think that's I think that's really unfair
1: art. and disingenuous. I think it's really disingenuous to say that.
0: I also don't think that there is definitely a character arc here, right? And that is that you can tell that there's a lot of weight on her in the first set of episodes, right? And then when she has her confrontation with, with Anakin, with his Force Ghost, with his presence, whatever you will, she comes out of that and is immediately different, right? It's like a weight has been lifted off of her. And that, I think I don't think she smiles until she comes back out of that that force vision or whatever you want to call it right and so she's a very very different character at that point it's like with that weight lifted off of her she is kind of integrating like her her adult self with her younger self a little bit right so there is a more a more lightheartedness about her that maybe have, was missing the first few episodes and i think um I think that was just written very and performed very purposefully. It feels like this was just part of the character arc of Ahsoka across this series. Um, as far as Hayden Christensen is concerned, uh, we've said this before, and I'll stand by it. He was done very wrong by George Lucas's writing in in the prequels. Um, I think he's fantastic in the role of Anakin, and I know um, nostalgia is one heck of a drug, but I really, really wish that there was a way that we could get, like, a full story um, of, of him as Anakin now with good writing, the way we know that he can perform the role. I mean, we've had, like, we've had him popping up in sort of a, as Vader, and sort of a guest appearance kind of thing in Kenobi, and we've had him kind of pop up as a guest appearance in Ahsoka, and I really think that Christensen could carry very easily some kind of, some kind of like mini series or something, whether that's some kind of flashback to his time during the Clone War, some kind of you know mission that provides background to a future movie they want to do, um, or whether it's something you know a little different from that, uh, something about his 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 Force ghost trying to make connections with people or something, or trying to move stuff around. I don't know. I just think that there's something valuable still in his performance as that character, and I think that there is something. There is enough there that we, a good story could come out of that. Um, I really wished I could see more of him, um, and I'm not particularly nostalgic for the prequels. Um, you know, we fixed the prequels in the past, and my opinion is pretty clear in that I think there were just a series of really huge missed opportunities, mostly held together by uh, by you know Ewan McGregor's Ben Kenobi. As far as performances go, he he basically he basically was like you know. He he needed a chiropractor after carrying three movies like that on his back. Um, but Ahsoka, I think overall is just really quality stuff. And I really enjoyed it. And even if you you know, if you can't forgive the little missteps in the storytelling, <laughs> which, you know, let's let's talk about Ewoks for a second then, if if that's how you feel. Um <laughs> really. Um, if you are uh if you're not willing to forgive the little missteps in the storytelling and just revel in the Star Warsiness of these character relationships. Then I I don't I don't think you you really enjoy Star Wars anymore. Like this is as I said the most Star Wars Star Wars that has Star Wars in many years. Um, One final comment: I loved when Ezra Bridger said he didn't want his lightsaber back because the Force is his ally. I was like that that is what you. But that is, what, that is what Yoda should have been in Attack of the Clones to me. When he whipped out that little lightsaber, I was like, come on. He's Yoda. The Force is his ally. He does not need a lightsaber. And I was a little offended by the fact that not even five minutes later, he picks up a blaster. And at the beginning of the next episode, he makes a new lightsaber. And I was like, dude, I was really looking forward to actually seeing a Jedi once say, you know, I'm just going to fight with the Force. I do not need the lightsaber. Like, I am still waiting for that Jedi. Can I get that Jedi, please? Because I thought it would be Yoda, and it wasn't. And then I thought, hey, Ezra might be the guy. And, you know, because he's had to survive so long without one. And guess what? He wasn't it either. Like, I just really wished he would have gone full force without the lightsaber. But that maybe that's just me. At the end of the day, it's still a lightsaber, dude. <laughs> Yeah, I
1: think I think for me one final takeaway, and you kind of displayed it this way. It's why I prefer of the three, like Empire Strikes Back, is probably the best quality film. But I prefer Return of the Jedi because of the heart and the like the the uplifting message of it. You know, um, and. We touched on it when you were talking, but like that's I think that's why rebels is so special to me because it's a family, it's a found family, and whether it's x men whether it's star wars i'm I'm going to go up for a found family um and even that final scene where Ezra takes off his helmet and Harris sees him, and like just the look in her eyes is just so incredibly powerful. Um, and i'll I'll always go up for like family and meaning and i'll I'll be able to overlook i'm I'm not very like a micromanager like I'll be over I'll be willing to overlook that if you give me a good storyline thematically and heart.
0: Yeah, I think I can echo that All right, Dave so we are going to the other
1: uh star based sci-fi. Uh, fandom for your nerd commendation.
0: Okay, so in order to explain a little bit where I'm coming from, I'm, I'm going to have to flashback for a second. So when I was a kid, I was a big fan of original Star Trek reruns. Um, Captain Kirk was my guy. I loved the Star Trek movies featuring the original crew. That stuff was my jam as a kid. I was all about that. I did not really connect very well to Next Generation. Um, I had a friend, a close friend who was really into next generation, but for me, I, I've struggled mightily connecting with that. And I still, to this day, have not really watched all of next generation. I've watched some standout episodes that have been recommended to me. Um, I've watched the next generation movies. I see the appeal now, and eventually I'll circle back around to it. Initially, I also did not as a kid connect to, uh, to deep space nine, um, I don't know what was going on there. I don't know if it was like a brand confusion because Babylon five was floating around out there at the same time. One of my, one of my best friends was a huge Babylon five fan and was constantly trash talking deep space nine as like this derivative product. Um, And so ultimately um, deep space nine and I did not connect until much later when I was an adult. Um, And so to me, if you're looking at the original star Trek shows, um, Deep Space Nine is probably the best. I think, that is, I think that is totally fair to say from a storytelling perspective. It's the most complex. It's the one that got to be the most serialized. And because of that, it had the sort of the deepest stories and the best character development. There is, however, one show that I have a massive soft spot for because I did actually watch it as it aired and that is star trek voyager uh star trek voyager is is a weird weird animal of a a television show in that it has a premise that lends itself to serialization and yet the word from the powers that be from the producers was always to downplay serialization and and do standalone episodes instead there are things about voyager that I absolutely adored um i think uh Captain Catherine Janeway is, is a fantastic character and her character development across the show is really good. Um, I really liked, you know, the character of Tom Paris as the pilot, Bellana Torres, was, uh, and their um, their blossoming romance on the ship was really interesting, especially in the earlier seasons. I think they did really cool things with, um, with time travel in the show at some point. Um, but I think Voyager today I stand sort of as a great missed opportunity in complex storytelling for this ship that is, you know, a, a federation ship but lost 70,000, you know, light years away from from Federation space and is trying to make their way home. I think it is a great missed opportunity. But I have a soft spot for it. One of the things that always irked me tremendously about the show, however, was the finale in that the finale was a two-part story that ended incredibly abruptly, in that they return to the Alpha Quadrant after being gone for seven years. The ship appears where it's supposed to be, and the show ends. And there is no catharsis, no release, no reunion, heartfelt or otherwise, between characters and their loved ones. There's no sense of, of really returning home. Right, it's just boom—we're back in the Alpha Quadrant. Everybody smiles. The end. Right, and so there, there was a lack of, shall we say, denouement, uh, and and I thought that was a, a huge missed opportunity um, as part of the show. Well, lo and behold, uh, much like pretty much every Star Trek show, they actually relaunched it as a series of novels. Um, I've read the the relaunched DS Nine books, and so I decided to you know flip over and check out the relaunched Voyager books, and the first book in the series uh, was Star Trek Voyager Homecoming by Christy Golden, and lo and behold, this is what I was looking for. Um, I'm about halfway through the novel so far, and I wholeheartedly recommend it already uh, for fans of Star Trek Voyager who felt that the finale was way too abrupt, Um, because here is your denouement. Uh, The first half of the book basically is the reunions, uh, the status of the various characters as they try to reintegrate into Federation space after being gone so long. And yes, this is also laying the seeds for future stories as this was the starting point for a whole series of books. But there's something deeply satisfying in dealing with the emotion of, of these characters that we've watched for seven years on the screen finally coming home who, who, you know, is able to sort of slide back into their old life, who struggles, you know, uh, who, who doesn't really find a place easily and needs to redefine themselves. Those sorts of things um, could have very easily be dealt with within the show, at least somewhat, um, but they didn't. And so if you were a fan of Star Trek Voyager and you felt like the ending was too abrupt, I highly recommend Star Trek Voyager Homecoming by Christy Golden for giving you a little bit of that closure that you're looking for as these characters return home. Yeah, so Voyager is one of
1: those things on my nerd bucket list um, that I have yet to complete that I have every intention in the world. That might be my summer project, Um. To, to dive into to Voyager, um, longtime listeners know that I came very, 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 very late to the Star Trek fandom. Uh, my introduction to Star Trek proper properly was through the first J.J. Abrams film, um, and then Into Darkness. Um, and then I didn't get into Star Trek until the original series. I used to watch on Netflix, um, probably like eight or nine years ago and then um i watched through the next generation and i agree with you i think and then you know very detailed my journey with deep space nine uh based on your recommendation um and one of the things that is one of the, the greatest benefits of our friendship is Deep Space Nine and that that recommendation when you and I were bored out of our minds at a professional development you were like oh by the way you should watch Deep Space Nine and uh but I think um someone I think someone on Star Trek Twitter said um Deep Space Nine is what you think next generation is it's just your nostalgia like and all of
0: that seems right, yeah. And
1: and there are character moments that um, I love from from Next Generation. I love some of those characters, but circling back to what I just said about Ahsoka and Star Wars Rebels is that found family, these disparate parts, so so completely different, um, is is so hammered home, and it's so effortless effortlessly well done on Deep Space Nine.
0: Um I think that I think within the problem of next generation and I know this is going to sound a little unkind but you know I, you you might recall that I read like this massive like two volume yes. oral history yeah. of Starfleet the conflict right?
1: the conflict thing yeah
0: and it was the conflict thing it goes back to Gene Roddenberry saying he does not want con- interpersonal conflict between the crew and when you remove the concept of interpersonal conflict from these characters, I mean, one of the ways that characters grow is they come into conflict, they bump against each other, right? And then and then they grow. So I understand Roddenberry's vision of sort of a utopia and we've moved, moved past this, but from a storytelling perspective, it's incredibly limiting. Um, and I think that's why in some ways I struggle to connect to, to next generation is because I didn't feel like these people were real people, if that makes sense, right? They were sort of you know, overly idealized almost in a lot of ways. And that's why I think ultimately um, Deep Space Nine resonated more with me. And Voyager, Voyager sits like halfway between those two, you know, like Voyager has these hints where it wants to do what Deep Space Nine does, but doesn't get to. And so it feels a little bit more next generation-y, but there's these glimmers of of Deep Space Nine-ness, I guess, um, Voyager, to me, has some of the highest highs in Star Trek, but also some of the lowest lows. It is a very, very uneven show because of that. i give you a great example. There was a two-parter. Uh, the Year of Hell, or Hell Year, or something like that, and it chronicles one year of like the lives of uh, on Voyager and how just everything goes wrong, and the the ship is battle worn, and they can't you know get supplies, and it's 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 absolutely amazing two parter. The problem is that it was it was pitched as a season long twenty two episode arc. You know, it was supposed to be literally the season of everything going wrong and the ship from episode to episode is like limping along and slowly things are getting worse, you know, and you see the consequences over time of them trying to make their way home and being so far away from resources, which is genius, but it was shot down by producers saying you can make it a two-parter, but then everything has to reset back because we're doing standalone stories. So you get these glimmers of what DS9 did so well, you know, character growth, um, and and sort of serialization, but they really didn't get to ever pull the trigger on it fully. And, uh, and that was to the detriment of the show. I think for me what makes Deep Space Nine, and again I don't have
1: context for Voyager yet, but I think what makes Deep Space Nine stand out to me is and you've called it bumpy forehead syndrome for the alien species on Star Trek. But even by that even through that filter, you at least have different species of aliens on this core cast you have um you have a Klingon you have a human you have Bajorans uh you have uh the shapeshifters uh, like like Odo like you have um like all of these different types of species all of their deeply entangled allegiances and how these people can coexist is fascinating to me. And how Cisco has to iron out all of these disparate parts and make everything run smoothly on this space station is fascinating to me.
0: And so part of the setup of Voyager was partially that too. You know, Uh, in fact... Uh, it's it's uh, in a lot of ways it's an outgrowth of Deep Space Nine because you're dealing with the Marquee, right? I mean, the mission of Voyager initially is to like hunt down a, a group of marquee and then both ships get catapulted into the Delta Quadrant, and then Janeway puts the two crews together when the marquee ship is 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 uh, destroyed, right? So the idea is you have these two very different sets of people that are interacting, but then they never really went far enough with it you know like they just they ironed out the differences too fast they didn't they didn't let things simmer like they did in deep space nine it was it was a like i said a lot of missed opportunities there and
1: look at us our nerd commendations is longer than our big talk
0: (laughs) well we were we we also can be a bit uneven sometimes All righty, folks. Well, there you have it. Uh, that's it for episode 173 of the Nerd by Word podcast. If you like what you just heard, please get on your favorite podcasting platform, drop us a rating and a review, and subscribe so you never miss another episode. We are wherever podcasts can be found and our very own website, nerdbyword.com.
1: And find us on all the socials because at the time of this recording, who knows what will happen with Twitter, but you can find us on all the socials at nerd by word, perhaps individually that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris, but as always stay well and stay nerdy.
0: The nerd by word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things, pop culture The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available.